Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Just a little note before we get started, everybody. I'm going to use the word orthodox here to refer to the idea of agreed-upon traditional beliefs in Christianity. In some earlier episodes, I used it to refer to the Russian Orthodox Church. Sorry for the confusion, but this is one of those examples of where the English language lets us down. We have one word that means several things. Okay, here's the show. I was recently at the Spark Christian Podcast Conference, where Truce won both Best Produced Podcast and Best Male Podcast Host, which is so flattering. But before all that, I pulled two cool ladies aside. Tina Smith. Alicia Avant. To do what seemed at first like a trivial exercise. I'm just going to grab something here out of my bag. What, What is that? Trail mix? It's trail mix. Can we open that up real quick? Can you open that up? So we're just going to kind of pour it out here a little bit. So what, what, what do we have there? We have peanuts. Ooh, yogurt-covered raisins. Uh-huh. What are these? Those, Those are, are raisins. Regular raisins. Yeah. <laughs> these are walnuts. Yeah. Uh-huh. Lots of good stuff, right? Now, what what, are, what do you think are your favorite pieces in this in this batch? My the yogurt covered raisins. Okay. And probably the walnuts. I would say raisins, not the yogurt, but the regular raisins. Really? Yes. Those were my favorite growing up, and I called them puffies. I'm going to just pull out all the yogurt raisins. Everybody says they love them, so we'll just pull those out, put them aside. We've still got a pile in the middle. I just want to ask you, is that is that still trail mix? Yeah, it's still trail mix. Still trail mix? I would say so. Okay, what if I pull out the other raisins? I know you like the raisins. So we have no yogurt raisins, we have no regular raisins. Is that still trail mix? It's not very aesthetically pleasing at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's becoming less and less trail mix as we go. Okay, so what we've got now is peanuts, walnuts, and pineapple. And it doesn't, you're right, it is all yellow and brown. <laughs> it does not look good. But we'll, we'll pull the uh, yellow out. We'll pull out the pineapple bits as best I can. And uh, is that still trail mix? Now, now it's mixed nuts. <laughs> you're right, mixed nuts it's now. It's mixed nuts. Yeah. When did it cross that line? What, was, what is the barrier? When you took all the good stuff out. <laughs> well, you got rid of all the fruit. Yeah. We have no more fruit. Right. No more fruits. So. When does trail mix stop being trail mix? It feels like a silly exercise, but this is how a lot of us approach Christianity. We pick out the stuff we're not cool with and throw it away. There are a lot of ingredients, though. We can toss aside concepts, ideas, theology, and it still kind of looks like Christianity. But is it? I'll let you in on a little secret. The Founding Fathers of the United States did the same thing. That fact is at the heart of a debate that is really popular in the Christian world. Some of us, not all of us, believe that the United States is a Christian nation. In the next few episodes, we're going to be looking into whether or not that's actually true. 
is the United States a Christian nation? What do we hope to gain by calling it one? And just how much of historic Orthodox Christianity can we ditch before it's not really Christianity anymore? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. I want to introduce you to our guide for the next few weeks. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Greg Fraser. I teach history and political studies at the Masters University in, in California. He's the author of two books, The Religious Beliefs of America's Founders and God Against the Revolution, The Loyalist Clergy's Case Against the Revolution. We're going to start with a story about a man named Joseph Priestley who lived in the 1700s. Priestley was a, an interesting character. He was, a, kind of a, he was on one hand a scientist. In fact, he's generally recognized as getting credit for discovering oxygen. As well as seven other gases. He also wrote about how to carbonate water. Think about him the next time you drink a seltzer. This was around the time of the American Revolution, which, a few years later, helped to spark the French Revolution. Priestley supported both. He lived in England, which was not exactly thrilled with the idea of revolution. I mean, obviously, because it was an empire spanning several continents. The notion that a people could rise up against their God-appointed leader, well, that was obviously not cool with them. Priestley saw the French Revolution as a sign of the end times from the Bible. His views were not shared by his fellow Englishmen, who, in 1791, burned his house and lab. The guy had some unpopular ideas for his time, and not just concerning politics, but also religion. He was a, um, a preacher. He didn't have a church of his own because he was too radical. But uh, he wrote a multi-volume series of books uh, on what he called the corruptions, the history of the corruptions of Christianity. Which Thomas Jefferson liked so much that he referred to it as the basis of my own faith. So, you know, it was an important book. Like I said, a multi-volume work in which he takes on basically most of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity and argues that they are corruptions, that they are not true Christianity. This was the era of the Enlightenment, the 1700s, the period in history class that you and I have basically forgotten completely about. <laughs> you might remember something about it if I tell you one of its other names, the Age of Reason. The idea was that the problems of humanity could be solved by using our gifts of reason. If something didn't line up with human reason, it simply wasn't true. Priestley was one of the preachers who applied ideas from guys like John Locke, Immanuel Kant, and Voltaire to theology. He could read through the Bible, and if a story or teaching didn't fit, he figured he could just throw it out and keep whatever he thought was rational. In his mind, what was left was the heart of Christianity, 
the true stuff. For him, true Christianity was the moral teachings of Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you'd have done to you. A, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. Basic morality. He believed that nature could teach us about God's nature. Birds and trees, rain and thunder. And he determined in his own reason that God was essentially benevolent. He was good to his people. If something didn't fit his idea of God's benevolence, he didn't keep it. God's wrath? Hardly benevolent, so he put it in the shredder. Enlightenment theology left a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. Maybe the biggest idea, and one of the first to be cut out, was the concept of Jesus' divinity. Priestley took out ye old chainsaw and cut that part out. Uh, so he denied the deity of Christ, he denied original sin, he denied the atonement, of the atoning work of Christ, he denied just about every fundamental doctrine of Christianity. He kept the morals, ideas of peace and turning the other cheek, the greeting card stuff, you know, the stuff that you post on Instagram. Without Jesus' divinity holding him back, he could pretty much create his own religion. That still looked a little like traditional Christianity, when in truth, he was essentially a Unitarian. This may seem kind of benign, Priestley was just some guy isolating oxygen and writing books. Not a big deal, right? But the thing about ideas is that they have a way of spreading. Some of the people influenced by Priestley? Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, and John Adams. Benjamin Franklin um, led the effort to build a church in Philadelphia that was non-denominational uh, so that anybody, basically the way he put it, so that anybody who wanted to could preach there, but he primarily built it to give a place for Joseph Priestley to periodically preach because uh, he was so sort of outrageous that uh, he wasn't welcomed in, in most churches. Franklin was going to build a church for this guy in the United States. Someone who taught Christianity minus Jesus's divinity. Priestley figures heavily in the shaping of these men, along with other preachers who deny Jesus either partially or fully. Guys like Samuel Clark, Charles Chauncey, Jonathan Mayhew. These guys tried to pull apart the central tenets of biblical Orthodox Christianity, in time influencing the men who then shaped America, using the values of the Enlightenment to pick out the metaphorical raisins and keep the cashews. His ideas and those of people like him went on to shape not just the theological fabric of their day, but the United States itself. We'll be back after this message. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, 
you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. If you've studied the Founding Fathers, you've probably heard the argument that they were deists or that they were Christians. But Dr. Fraser argues that binary categorization is not good enough. My eight founders that I studied were John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin, because they were the ones who were the movers and shakers behind the Declaration of Independence. And then James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, two guy, and two guys who are virtually unknown today, unfortunately, James Wilson and Gouverneur Morris, who were, these guys were the most influential, arguably, on the Constitution. And then, as I said, George Washington uh, is the monumental figure of the age. But the research led me to believe that all eight of them uh, held fundamentally the same uh, religious belief system, which I call theistic rationalism. What actually spurred me to write that book is frustration at the sort of two sides of the argument. Um, You had the secularists um, who argued that all the founding fathers were deists, or if not deists, rank secularists, who just wanted to separate all religion from public life. And then on the other side of the argument, you had the Christian America camp, which argued that the American founders were virtually all Christians uh, who wanted to, intended to create a Christian nation based on biblical principles. And I was frustrated because I didn't think either of them was right. So instead, he researched their beliefs and came up with a third option. But in order to understand that third option, we should probably define the two big ingredients that were mixed together to make it. Deism. Ooh, a big, scary word, right? But it's actually pretty easy. Essentially, it's the idea that God created the world. He got the whole thing in motion, making men and women, cows and ducks, building mountains, filling the oceans. He got the whole thing going, got it up and running, and then left. Left, left. Left it to run itself. There is a God, he created the world, but he is not actively participating in that world. Thus, Jesus was not God because God walking among us is the ultimate example of God getting involved. They didn't think that could happen. That is deism in a nutshell. Christianity, on the other hand, features a God who is really involved in the world. He created it. Cows and ducks. Men and women. Rain and thunder. Sending his son Jesus to die. To take on himself the wrath of God that we deserved because of our sin. If we believe in his sacrifice... We are forgiven of our sin, and heaven is open to us. Apart from that basic truth, Christianity can mean a lot of different things. Calvinism, Pentecostalism, and Catholicism, for example, are really different from each other. But they all have the same basic guts. For his book, Greg went back and determined not just what Christianity means today— 
but also what it meant in the 1700s, using the creeds and confessions of that era. To see what those denominations, what those churches said that they believed and what what constituted Christianity. There's a remarkable similarity in what the various denominations believed at the time. He's got a helpful chart in the book that lays this out, comparing Presbyterians, Lutherans, Baptists, Anglicans, Episcopalians, and Catholics, and what they believed. There were 10 fundamental doctrines that all of them ascribed to. Catholic or Protestant, 10 big things in common. I use that then as the definition of Christianity uh, for the purposes of the book. And it just so happens that uh, I think all 10 of them are, in fact, fundamental doctrines of Christianity. So it made it easy to uh, to um, adopt that. That is going to be a lot. So let's take a minute, gather ourselves, breathe deeply, and get ready for a theological sprint. Like a real sprint. I'm going to relay all of this information while sprinting. All right, so who am I here with? Uh, this is Josh Phillips. Ready, set, go. Um, one is the Trinity. Okay, so the first topic is the Trinity. It's basically the idea that um, there's God the Father, God the Son, uh, God the Holy Spirit. One being and three separate distinct persons. Nice. Okay, that one was easy. Therefore, that leads to a second one, which is the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, so, the deity, that Jesus is God. I would say, oh, actually, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which if we reference that back to Daniel 7, that's where we see that he is God. Whew, I'm starting to feel it. Are you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, third is that uh, there's a God, the God, that God is active in human affairs. I think one of the uh, best examples of it uh, is his suffering. That's something that we can relate to. Anything that we're going through, you know, he did it. He suffered on this world just like we do. Oh, there's a leaf blower up ahead, so we probably should turn around. Go that way. All right. Uh, Fourth, original sin. It's basically the idea that there was an actual physical Adam and Eve, and their sin started the course of events across the whole of humanity, that we are all now sinners, and we're falling away from God. And there's a separation between us and God. I agree with that. Okay. That's, that's well put. Okay. Uh, fifth is the virgin birth. It's just like what it sounds like. Okay. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in her. And Jesus, Jesus' father is God. Uh, sixth is the atoning work of Christ. Uh, death, death had to occur for our sin. It was the only payment that could be made for our transgressions. Now there's a, is there a lawnmower now? It is February, who's mowing their lawn? This is a bad neighborhood. And then the next one is the resurrection. Jesus actually died. He was crucified on a cross and then rose from the dead. Um, and that is a key belief in Christianity. It's a huge claim. It separates us from a lot of other beliefs. Yeah. And then uh, eighth is eternal punishment for sin. This is one we don't like to talk about, yeah. but it's fundamental and it's yeah. pretty clear biblically that there is an actual hell. And those who don't accept the free gift of Jesus' death on the cross for them, well, it's not gonna look good. Um, the good news, of course, is if we trust in Jesus, we're saved yeah. by the grace of God, not based on works. 
So now we've got two leaf blowers, an airplane, and a highway. And oxygen <laughs> levels lowering. Yes. Uh, ninth is justification by faith. The Bible would say we're saved by grace through faith. Right. It works alone, can't do it. It's the one thing that sets us apart from all of the religions is that we, don't, we can't earn our way. Right. This is the one asterisk where the Catholics, some Catholics, would argue that we are saved by faith, yes, but also by works as well. I'm making sure we're still recording. Oh gosh, I hope so. We are, yes, okay. <laughs> I'm about to die. And then 10th is the inspiration and authority of scripture, of the Bible. In the 1700s, all of those denominations believed that the Bible was the word of God, that it was wholly inspired, that it is true. I could elaborate more in a, in a less cardiovascular setting. Well, the purpose of this was to keep it short. So I think we've succeeded. Yes, you have. We're crossing the finish line. And that is our theological sprint. I want you to plug your podcast because you've earned it. Uh, I catch my breath. Here with the Switching Lenses podcast, where we evaluate culture, society, and politics, break it down from an apologetic level. Praise God. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. All of this stuff was agreed upon by those various denominations in pre-revolutionary United States. In his book, Dr. Fraser makes the case that the eight core founding fathers were neither deists nor Christians. They, like the Enlightenment preachers, believed that they could pick and choose whatever they liked, whatever fit their ideas of what was within reason, whatever was rational. Those who believed they were deists or rank secularists look for evidence in their writings that, that they weren't Christians, and you can find that evidence. And so then they said, okay, aha, they must have been deists or secularists. And then on the other side, the Christian America people do the same thing, but the other way around. They look for evidence to show that they weren't deists, and then they find that, and they say, oh, ha, ha, they weren't deists, therefore they must be Christians. Well, that's only true if there's, a, if there's this dichotomy. And so the evidence, the bulk of the evidence in my book comes from private correspondence, diary entries, personal memoranda, so forth, of the key founders, rather than public pronouncements, because public pronouncements are made for the benefit of the public. And so it doesn't necessarily tell you what they actually believe. The, one of the famous um, Thanksgiving Day proclamations, for example, that was put out by John Adams, includes a number of things that he absolutely, vehemently opposed belief in. Uh, but they're there because that's what the public wants to see in public documents. And, and so much of the Christian America argument is made off of public documents that are written for the public, for public approval. In fact, a number of cases, I ran across a number of cases in letters in which individuals like Thomas Jefferson, for example, would, would tell the person at the end of the letter, after you read this letter, destroy it so that no one sees it. Or Jefferson actually went after the widow of one of the, his, the guys he wrote to to get back a letter that he had, had written to him so that it wouldn't become public. And so it, it's in these private writings that they, they tell us what they really believe, uh, not what they're saying for, for the public's benefit. Whereas sometimes they, look, they sounded like they were deist or secularist, and sometimes they sounded like they were Christian, it's because... They weren't really either. They were something in the middle that borrowed from both of those. And so I invented this term, theistic rationalism. Theistic rationalism mixes the ideas of rationalism, that you can pick and choose whatever you want, with natural religion, 
the idea that God is evident in nature and Orthodox Christianity. They retained as much of Christianity as they could, but rejected whatever they thought was irrational in Christianity. Likewise, with deism, they they retained as much of that as they could, but rejected what they thought was irrational. And as a result, they ended up rejecting both of the critical elements of deism and most of the nine, at least, of the ten fundamental doctrines of Christianity, at least as the 18th century church identified it. So which stuff from our theology marathon would they have liked? For starters, the idea that God is active in human affairs. And that's it. Really, that, that's it. They didn't agree with any of the other parts. No trinity, no atonement, no scripture. They could take it or leave it. Critically, and I know I've said this a few times already, but we need to drive this point home, they did not believe that Jesus was God. A good man, but not God. Something, honestly, that I hear a lot when I share my faith with others. So their approach to scripture was something like going to a buffet. They could take as much as they wanted, but leave behind everything they didn't like. Thomas Jefferson famously took scissors or or a straight edge, as one of my critics says. I don't know how he knows that. But anyway, he, he, he took something to cut with, and uh, he cut out all the supernatural, miraculous elements in the four Gospels, and then pasted what was literally, pasted what was left back together, uh, and you can still buy it today. It's still in print. It's called now. It's called the Jefferson Bible. That isn't what he called it. But uh, there he was cutting out the parts of this of the Bible that to him were irrational and didn't match with his reason. That is the supernatural stuff, and then pieced it back together to have the moral teachings of Jesus, which is what he considered to be valid. Jefferson is often disregarded in these discussions because he was seen as somewhat of an outlier. He and Franklin were the bad boys of the Declaration and Constitution. Jefferson flat out disagreed with the central tenets of Christianity. In the footnote to a letter to William Short from October 31st, 1819, he stated it clearly. And by the way, next time you write a letter to a friend, add footnotes. Why don't we do that anymore? He wrote that the teachings of Jesus should be quote-unquote rescued from ideas like The Immaculate Conception of Jesus, His Deification, The Creation of the World by Him, His Miraculous Powers, His Resurrection and Visible Ascension, His Corporal Presence in the Eucharist, The Trinity, Original Sin, Atonement, Regeneration, Election, Orders of Hierarchy, etc. Did Thomas Jefferson believe anything? He didn't believe any of that. Alright, okay. Playing the role of Thomas Jefferson is Eric Nevins of the Halfway There podcast. You see, Jefferson was not a fan of Jesus being God. Yet Christian Americans point to his writing in the Declaration, which mentions God, as proof that he was a Christian. Nope. He looked like one, but he did not believe the fundamental tenets of Christianity. How about another example? John Adams, the second president of the United States, called the idea of Jesus' divinity absurd. He did this in a diary entry on February 13, 1756. I'll have a link to that and a bunch of other interesting stuff on the website if you'd like to read it for yourself. George Washington, the first president of the United States, serves as an interesting case study too. He believed in the power of prayer, attending church regularly, and said that the morals of Christianity were good for society. But scholars have noted that in more than 
20,000 pages of writing, he only referred to Jesus by name one time. And even that is called into question because it's not in his handwriting. He often had aides writing letters for him, which he would sign, perhaps without reading them. Washington also never claimed to be a Christian. Jefferson wrote that Washington was not one, and the clergyman at Washington's church in Philadelphia also denied that George was a believer. He refused to take communion and was a leader in the Freemasons, a social group that explicitly taught a supreme being but denied salvation through Christ. The fact is, these guys looked Christian but did not believe the central tenets. They believed it was good for teaching morality, even though Franklin, Jefferson, and Governor Morris were known womanizers. I don't claim that everybody in the founders was a theistic rationalist. I studied eight key founders and concluded that those eight were all theistic rationalists. FYI, for all of the Alexander Hamilton fans out there, he became a Christian near the end of his life. And at the end of the musical, for those who are paying attention. Um, I know there were Christians among the founders. Absolutely, there were Christians among the founders. Uh, John Jay, Roger Sherman, John Witherspoon, and others. There were believers among the founders. I don't think there are any deists, ironically, among the founders, unless you go deep enough to get to Thomas Paine uh, and Ethan Allen, and that's pretty far down the list of founders. I think people should be very leery of someone who tells you the founders believed this, because the founders were discrete individuals who held different beliefs. They didn't all believe the same thing in lockstep. They're like politicians today. We, we can't say politicians believe, right? There's a little yeah. bit of difference between what Donald Trump believes and what Nancy Pelosi believes. Um, and the same thing was true of the founders. They, they weren't just a, 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 a mass, they were individuals. And so I try not, you should be leery about people saying the founders believed on anything other than what they actually wrote, like the Constitution. It's important that we know what these guys believed because there is a movement out there saying that the US is a Christian nation founded by Christian men. That isn't really true. It is a nation that is deeply influenced by the morals of Christianity, yes. But fundamentally, Christianity isn't about morals. We are saved by faith, not by works, not by being good enough. To say that Christianity is a religion of morals is to miss the point entirely and to skip historic Orthodox beliefs. Just to give you a taste of what they believed, we'll go through some basic parts of Christianity. like. Miracles, do they happen? These guys said no. None of the guys believed in all the miracles of the Bible, though Franklin did fancy at least one, turning water into wine. The guy liked his wine. Did they believe that Jesus was God? No, none of them, not Adams, not Franklin, not Madison. Did they go to church? Surprisingly, yes, they went to church. Isn't that crazy? They didn't believe in Jesus, but they went to church anyway, partially to keep up a public persona. And also they believed that church was a crucial way to instill morals into citizens. Let's go back to that illustration about trail mix at the beginning of the show. The theistic rationalists laid out in the book believed that they could pick and choose. 
Remember what their primary requirement was to determine if God actually did something that the Bible claimed? It had to fit their ideas of his benevolence, of being good. If it didn't fit their human rational ideas, they threw it out like we might ignore parts of trail mix. Just as trail mix stops being trail mix when we're just down to a pile of nuts, Christianity stops making sense when we cut out the parts we don't like. Are there ways that we do this today? Of course. They removed everything that didn't fit with God's benevolence. Today, we do it when parts of the Bible don't match up with our ideas of God's love. Really, many of our modern arguments with Christianity stem from this gap in our understanding, from where our human ideas of what love is collide with God's actual character. Picking the gospel apart, pulling out what we don't like, leaves us with something that has no power, no complexity, and ultimately leaves us with something that is about as valuable as a pile of old mixed nuts. Special thanks to Dr. Greg Fraser. His books are The Religious Beliefs of America's Founders and God Against the Revolution, The Loyalist Clergy's Case Against the Revolution. We're going to be spending some more time with him soon. Subscribe to the podcast so you get every new episode as it's released. We had a lot of vocal help on this episode, so thank you to Alicia Avian, Tina Smith of the Raising Kids on Your Knees podcast, Josh Phillips of the Switching Lenses podcast, and Eric Nevins, host of Halfway There. Truce is listener-supported. The beauty of podcasting is that it allows ideas like this one that we covered today, ideas that challenge the established assumptions of our faith, to get out there. Traditional radio can't do that because it risks losing sponsors. Together, you and I can ask the hard questions but I'll need your help to do it. My goals are to do this show full-time, release episodes more regularly, and eventually hire some reporters. We've got a ways to go, but together we can change the face of Christian media. Donate online at trucepodcast.com. My challenge to you this week is to post about Truce on all of your social media platforms. Let the world know that you support this show by retweeting or reposting one of our dozens of social media posts. Also, you may notice that there are ads for books and colleges and things throughout the show. Here's the thing. Because I'm putting in so many hours at all of my jobs, I don't have time to read all of the books or understand the products. Not even for the ads that I voice. I'm part of a network and they serve the ads into the show. I'm also paid by them to record and edit some of those ads. If this is something that bothers you, I would like to know about it. So send me an email at trucepodcast at yahoo.com or contact me via social media because I'd like some feedback on what you, the audience, think about that. We'll be back in two weeks with more about the Christian America argument. It's going to be great. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Steren, and this is Truce.